If you have a child that's loved and has opportunities and is in their family, you're not going to have child abuse. In fact, we have very little real child abuse in the indigenous sector to begin with. What we have is the debilitating impacts of poverty. That's Ken Richard. He's the founder of Native Child and Family Services of Toronto, Canada's first and largest child welfare authority serving Indigenous peoples. He's our guest today on the Akamema podcast. Danse, Tawau, and welcome to the Akamema podcast. I'm your host, Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. Akamemek is Plains Cree for you all persevere, or in other words, let's keep going and don't give up. On this podcast, we discuss the leading issues facing First Nations peoples with top experts, with elders, and community leaders. And one of the top issues we're addressing today is the federal government's decision to allocate more than half a billion dollars in funding to First Nations peoples to set up their own welfare services for children and families under their own jurisdiction and laws. This funding is to implement Bill C-92, an act respecting First Nations, Inuit and Métis children, youth and families. It is part of an effort to end the historic and ongoing trauma caused by the removal of First Nations children from their culture and communities. The worst example of this was the genocide of the residential school system, but it continues to this day through the child welfare system. Our guest today is a leading expert on the potential impact on the implementation of Bill C-92, and as well as being the founder and former executive director of Native Child and Family Services of Toronto, Ken Richard has had a long career advocating for Indigenous children and families. He's a Métis from Manitoba. His work has included time spent in the Children's Aid Society in Winnipeg, He's Vice President of the Caring Society. He's an advisor to the 60s Scoop Healing Foundation. And for his work, Ken Richard has been recognized with many awards, including the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Medal and the Governor General's Meritorious Service Cross. Mr. Ken Richard, welcome to the Akamema Podcast. Thanks, Chief. I appreciate the opportunity to share a little bit of what I've experienced over uh, four decades, and if you stretch it a bit, almost five. So um, I'm very pleased to be here. I'm very pleased to see uh, some progress because I, my experience has taken me from the darkest days and the belly of the beast, if you will, to something that uh, shows some light and some hope. So, Well, again, welcome here. So, Ken, you've developed the Native Child and Family Services of Toronto a few years back, and so you have a lot of experience with that. And now we have this bill, C-92, in place, you know, and, and I've said this before that the jewel in Bill C-92 is that First Nations law is paramount in terms of, so it's over a federal law, over provincial law, over child and family services laws from province and territories. So that's in place now. And we have numerous Indian child and family service agencies across Canada, different native child and family service agencies. What challenges do you see? for Indigenous peoples as they start exerting their jurisdiction over child and family services and as they start building capacity. Uh, so you have delegated authorities versus this new thing in the, under Bill C-92. Can you see any challenges and how that how can that might be resolved? There's tons of opportunity first that I've already recognized, but there are within that uh, risks. We are dealing with children 
those very vulnerable and sacred uh, <laughs> beings that uh, we have been granted an opportunity to to parent. And um, child welfare is the interface between all that is uh, that goes wrong, and uh, it has historically been a very blunt instrument. How we can recraft that instrument in a way that actually serves children well, instead of the uh, kind of historical dynamics, which I think we'll probe a little bit more in our conversation, but that we are in a place where there are some opportunities for First Nations themselves to start exercising not only their rights, because to me, rights is one piece, but responsibility goes with rights. And the responsibility when you take on authority is to do a good job. And that's not so easy in child welfare. It's a very complicated. And let me say this, and I say this because I've been around long enough to, to know the scripts a little bit. And one of it is that the children's aides came in and arbitrarily stole children. And that did happen. And I know that that happened because I was there, but there were also kids in tremendous mm -hmm. distress. And there are kids in tremendous distress today. And the challenge will be supporting those children without decimating their families. And that's not easy when you overlay things like the opiate crisis, the persistent, the prevalence of various substance abuse, uh, you know, the, 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 all, the, the, all the legacies uh, that parents uh, uh, inherit through the colonial process is not gone away. So we, we will have to take a good hard look at certain realities and uh, before authorities are actually established, figure out ways on how to do it so we don't get, get conditioned to be a, just another brown mm. CAS, which has happened sometimes when you go too quickly. So developing capacity, developing your service model, developing particularly things like customer care that are very specific to an individual First Nation. These are challenges. And you know, having been not led into the room for many years, to suddenly be in the room and have the responsibility mm -hmm. is pretty daunting. And again, because kids are at the center of this fire, there's an extra set of uh, concerns that we all should have about making sure we do it right. I have seen scenarios where kids are placed in families where anybody's judgment would say, that's a political decision. It's not a good decision for the child because of the conditions of the family. And that family needs help, absolutely. And that's the core of Indigenous mm -hmm. child welfare is to help the family and prevent circumstances from leading to need to apprehend kids, keeping families together. But you know, it's a delicate balancing act in some, some communities more than others, some cases more than others. Mostly, mostly families won't be in distress to the point where anybody would apprehend them. And that's where good prevention mm -hmm. services come in. But I'm just concerned about those kids that are at imminent risk. Are they gonna be well protected? I've been around long enough to know sometimes you create structures without the capacity to implement what those structures are all about, the kids can get lost. And let me introduce another not so easy conversation. There's lots of money at play. You know, we know historically that child welfare has commodified kids with per diems and, 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 and adoption. And you know, it would cost about $12,000 to adopt a child uh, back in the day. So I have been aware that our kids have been sometimes uh, been commodified to the point where we lose sight of their best interest and it becomes, you know, uh, about money. Uh, to go, and money is, is powerful and, and, and we know can be pretty corrupting, can take us off our mission. So these are some of the 
the things, these are reflections yeah. that I'm giving you, but they are actual real life challenges. Um, that being said, we should celebrate um, all that is happening today because those dark days, those clouds are, are dissipating and, and there's, there's so much hope out there. Uh, but I think it's going to okay. take time before it kicks in. Well, Ken, you made a lot of good points. You know, some of the things, uh, I just want to reiterate, like children are our gifts from the Creator. And uh, along with exerting rights as First Nations people, there are responsibilities to make sure that those children are kept in safe, loving, and caring homes. And uh, uh, your point about keeping families together and focusing on prevention, not apprehension, uh, because the existing system was all about the way child welfare has commodified our kids, that the, the current funding model was the, the resources don't kick in until kids are apprehended. As soon as kids are apprehended, all oh, the money starts flowing. All of that starts flowing. That's so right. now, oh, yeah. with this existing system called Bill C-92, the opportunity to develop a new set of laws under First Nations laws and jurisdiction and policies and programs, I, I hear you loud and clear about capacity development, making sure that we don't develop the same pitfalls under the existing system. So question I've got in your experience, how... Can these systems work together or find a way for transitioning so that the issues that you talked about um, uh, don't come up again? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll speak about child welfare specifically. You know, there are various uh, overlapping uh, interests, even jurisdictions right now, confusion with respect to provincial and federal legislation. But that being said, I, I am not seeing too many forums where stakeholders are brought together with the hard questions to be uh, mm -hmm. examined proactively and to maybe uh, maybe uh, present uh, uh, before the fact instead of once we're into conflict, some of the challenges and develop with respect to collaboration mechanisms mm. to address them. Um, I, I know I just came off uh, doing a little uh, part-time work with the association here in Ontario of Indigenous Child Welfare Agencies. And, you know, there, there, there's a few of them. They've been developed over the past 20 years. And uh, they are not, though, uh, First Nation specific. They are uh, collaborations within tribal associations and such. So, so um, right now, uh, they are uh, uh, wondering uh, where they're going to fit with mm. C92 moving into the arena. And, uh, and uh, so what I'm saying, what I was saying, uh, well... Shouldn't we be talking? And uh, everybody agreed that we should. But so far, I've not seen these kind of collaborative efforts. The other thing is the the governments themselves don't seem to be collaborating mm. very well uh, at the provincial and federal level. And I know, Chief, that you've been uh, active certainly on that front because I've been reading the press releases and such. And it must you must be dizzy trying to work that one out because the complexity is inherent in merging those two. Uh, pieces of legislation and, and crafting something that uh, that uh, pays homage to C92 at the same time as recognizes the protection requirements under provincial legislation. I mean, it's got to be a nightmare, but this is, you know, there's people paid to sort this stuff out. And uh, I really, really strongly believe that uh, we should assume there's going to be problems if we don't mm -hmm. sit down now and that there'd be an opportunity, even in this time of COVID, to convene mm -hmm. tables. May, um, uh, not to be presumptuous, but the, the AFN, for example, could, could certainly facilitate some of that. But uh, it's time to have conversation with the people that are actually providing mm -hmm. the services. 
and to ensure that they're engaged appropriately because they are stakeholders and they have their eyes on the kids. So I guess my plea is to uh, uh, certainly not diminish the political context of this work because it is tremendously political, but there's technical yeah. aspects to it that uh, should be sorted out. But, and I don't see okay. those tables. That's a good recommendation. Stakeholders brought together. Create, con create and convene tables as soon as possible between the delegated authorities, uh, again, from province to province to province, yeah. along with First Nations that are exerting that jurisdiction to look after their children. So sure. that's a solid recommendation. Oh, yeah. With, again, always the yeah. focus on the child, the best interest of the child. Now, with this new thing under C-92, and the, these resources, because... Uh, I was there when C-92 was developed, and the biggest complaint about C-92 was, where's the money? Where's the resources? You know, for policies, programs, uh, capacity building, for capital, for all the things you're going to need. And that's what this half a billion dollars is supposed to reflect and recognize. And so we always say, based on the needs identified, and when First Nations are ready to exert that jurisdiction under their own law and under their authorities... Uh, that the resources should be there. So now there's an opportunity to incorporate holistic practices, traditional practices. So my question to you and your experience, Ken, how can traditional Indigenous practices help in changing the outcomes for children in the child welfare system? You know, the values that come from the teachings associated with child and family life are, are have tremendous uh, a, a currency for me in terms of how to envisage uh, best interests of child, for example. I'll, I'll give you a, a concrete example. Uh, Andrew Wesley, who is a, uh, a Cree elder mm -hmm. in Ontario, uh, who has been associated at different times with uh, my agency there. You know, we, we were consulting around child welfare and child protection and all those technical things. And, and he kind of said, you know, I, I see it a little more simply in terms of what our aspirations should be under child welfare. And it should not be just the absence of and he didn't quite say it like this, the absence of bruises or any of that stuff. It has to do with quality of life. And the aspirations of our indigenous sector, he, he said, should incorporate making sure kids are loved, making sure they have opportunity, uh, making sure that, uh, uh, that they uh, uh, have a family. Uh, so there's just a number of sort of simple things that my mother with her grade six education would probably say as well. Any, any humane... Uh, a person uh, that's been a parent knows what the uh, kids need. So that's the aspirations of our child welfare system. And that's, that's kind of hard because we know how compromised some of these things can get. Opportunity. Opportunity for youth, for example. We know, uh, you, know that, that, that they, you know, these kids, and we can go back to specific cases like the Thunder Bay dynamics there with the inquest on those poor kids who were drowned. You know, without... Yet we have to attend to those sorts of things. So it's a mm -hmm. systemic uh, response, but it's grounded in, you asked me a question about culture, sort of the aspirations that come from a cultural place. The kids kids are sacred. They need to be loved. They need to have opportunity. They need to have mm -hmm. their family. And um, if you have a child that's loved and has opportunities and is in their family, you're not going to have child mm -hmm. abuse as we know it. In fact, we have very little real child abuse in the Indigenous sector to begin with. You, you know, people believe otherwise, but... What we have is the debilitating impacts mm -hmm. of poverty. And these are, takes me to the other thing. And I know I'm straying from your question well, on fine. tradition, but I want to say that there's structural issues that are at play that no matter how good the teachings, how clear, you know, how much we, we invest, if, if these families are living mm -hmm. in shacks, uh, 
you cannot sustain those the quality of love and opportunity and all those things that the teachings mm -hmm. would tell us. So the child welfare is kind of at the at the interface between all those problems, our cultural values, and then the services that we are now being charged with providing, which again I mm -hmm. say is a good thing. But we, we have to talk about it a little bit more before we go fully into it because there's opportunity to do things right. And if we don't, the harm that can come to kids uh, can be pretty dramatic. Well, so. it's a system that we know there's 40,000 children in foster care across Canada. And it's, uh, it's a travesty. And it's, a, it's, it's so basically First Nations view this now as an opportunity to fix something uh, that's just... Yeah terrible in terms of an, a, a, a terrible abuse and there's racism discrimination and uh, in in a system uh, and and we've said before that if there is systemic racism and systemic discrimination you need transform transformational change and that again where it comes back to c92 and so I really like your example of getting the tables convening the table between the delegated Child, Indian Child and Family Service Agencies or Native Child, whatever they're called, province by province by province, to start working with the chiefs that are exerting their jurisdiction over their children and their citizens and the members of their tribe. Uh, that's, that's definitely comes to forefront. And incorporating First Nations values and traditions as part of that system, language, culture. You know, our children are gifts from the Creator. But then you aptly point out, well, there's still poverty to deal with. There's overcrowded housing to deal with. You know, all of those things, but your answer, as long as they're loved, there's opportunity, uh, surrounded by family with caring, uh, the child should be able to flourish. And we're trying to incorporate that going forward. So having said that, how does this thing called the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples play into this? Because we've talked about C92, which is over child welfare. There is now a bill called Bill C15, which is the implementation of the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, this is, to me, uh, going to be the groundbreaking document that's going to be uh, set to cement because uh, the foundation of uh, Indigenous rights shouldn't rest on various pieces of legislation. There'd be something more fundamental than a declaration uh, through the legislation. I don't know you folks have been working on that. To me, is absolutely the right way to go. And there's prohibitions in the, the, the rights declaration with respect, with respect to child removal, involuntary child removal and placement from one culture to the next. So this is very strong stuff. Uh, if we had had that kind of omnibus legislation uh, playing out earlier, uh, there'd be far mm. less kids in care. So, so to me, there's, there's some specific references within uh, a, a child having right to language and culture. You know, uh, it's, it's, it's a tremendous. And, uh, you're the, you have a better understanding, truly, uh, uh, with respect to this question than I do. The enforceability of uh, uh, rights is is sometimes the mm. big question. Uh, uh, sometimes it, it's just a show, and uh, and I'll, I'll be frank. I was part of the uh, the children's rights uh, in the early '90s, uh, the Declaration on the Rights of Children, which Canada signed off on, but I didn't see anything fundamentally change as a result of that. Now that was a declaration, and that was something we signed on to. This is something different. I hope that it has, it has the clout. I believe it will. Uh, it's going to be up to us activists to make sure the world knows about these rights 
and as kind a way as possible, steer people towards doing the right thing mm. under those rights. But I think it's it's the the powerful platform that's going to drive. It's the engine that will drive so much of our development, not just in child welfare, but in education and housing. Mm. You know all that. You know, Ken, your your career helping children goes back right to the 1970s with the Children's Aid Society in Winnipeg. So that's uh, 50 years of experience in, in a child welfare system. What's changed? Tell us about what it, like, this is how it was back in the 70s and 80s, and now we're into 2020. What are some of the changes and or challenges from your, that you've seen, the good, the bad, and the ugly, if you will, in the last 40, 50 years of working in this, uh, this uh, area? You know, it's hard to get uh, worse than, uh, to, in my experiences in the 70s in Winnipeg. You know, it was, uh, uh, that was a time when there was a lot of migration to the city, uh, people who weren't uh, properly <laughs> oriented to the city, and they fell apart pretty quickly, and there was nobody there to help them. And uh, the only help that was offered was child removal. And it was as simple as that. The Children's Aid of Winnipeg, and there were some very good people working there, so I want to make sure people understand that they weren't a bunch of people just waiting to pounce on the kids. They were overwhelmed themselves by what they were looking at. While there was a lot of racism, it was more structural. These social workers just didn't know what the hell they were looking at most of the time. And they got scared. They got scared. A middle-class person from River Heights in Winnipeg investigating a family at Logan and Ellen in downtown Winnipeg living in poverty. It's shocking to see and their reaction and the only service provided was child removal. So that was the way it was. And it was, there were linkages back in those days directly to adoption agencies in the States, for example. And earlier I said it cost about $12,000 to adopt a child because that was adoption fees that were paid. And I often say, well, you know, uh, indigenous, uh, indigenous people have believed that their, uh, their children were bought and sold. And you know, that's not, that's not wrong because buying and selling involves a commodity a buyer and a seller in the exchange of money. And all mm. that happened in child welfare back in the 70s. So let's not mince our mm. words about this. Uh, people didn't stop to think that it was a trade, but it very much was so. And we know those folks, and I've just finished up this work with the 60 Scoop uh, Healing Foundation. And one of the, the things that I looked for and I finally saw, back to your question on funding on C92, was the that, the, that they have a recommendation from their study through the University of Ottawa to do block funding. And that's that's the promise. Child welfare has historically been case by case, forensic, you have to apprehend, as you said earlier, to change that to money for prevention services, for cultural services, for uh, services to assist families with respect to some of those big ticket items like housing, et cetera. That's the key, that's the hope, and I think it's gonna happen. But it's, it's a few mm -hmm. years in the making. And in the meantime, we better make sure we're talking to each other. Otherwise, some okay. kids can get hurt. So, Ken, you mentioned uh, the 60 Scoop Healing Foundation. And, and uh, there was a national consultation with survivors of the scoop. Tell us a little bit about that, because uh, that's all part of this whole uh, child welfare piece as well. Uh, well, absolutely. It's, uh, you know, uh, looking back at those who, who, who experienced uh, this wholesale removal, you know, we, we did uh, t 12 consultations across the country. We uh, interviewed over a thousand people. We had 3,000 uh, sticky notes with recommendations that we, we poured through. And the folks at the uh, University of Saskatchewan were, were instrumental in doing the data analysis. So we, we did that uh, consultation. What I found when we, when we went into the, and this was just before COVID, so we were face to face. 
was a, there were a lot of people whose hearts were were torn. They they are between their natural family and their adoption family. There are a lot of people who came from incredibly toxic adoptive families who brutalized them in multiple ways, and they were basically the walking wounded needing tremendous therapy. We also had some folks that came and they said, I don't know, I'm just looking. They've been so assimilated. But when they finally sat with us, they created community together, those three very divergent groups, and we had wonderful, I will say wonderful, well, maybe that's the wrong word, but very highly intense, emotional, opportunities. We, we worked with them, with the elders. Uh, we allowed them to tell their stories. And we have a report that people should have a look at, because if you want to know what good services might look like, who's a better expert than the survivors themselves of the 60 mm -hmm. Scoop? So have a look at the website there, 60 Scoop Healing Foundation. You'll see a report with recommendations that I think uh, work very well for anybody wanting to provide services. But it was a huge, cathartic, emotional experience for everybody. And there were lots of tears. But you know what? We helped create a community, I think. The report and the foundation are going to go on and provide uh, this spoke, these folks with the recognition that they deserve. They've been silenced. They've disappeared. And they're back. And... You know, I'm looking forward to two big things there. And it was tremendously exciting uh, for me to be part of that and, and mm. an honor as well. Ken, I know we've, uh, uh, there's things that we've talked about that are very challenging from the 60s scoop to the uh, 40,000 children in foster care. I think back to the whole residential school system, which was a genocide of our people in Canada, uh, the 60s scoop, the day schools uh, that are benefiting now. Uh, the class action suit on child welfare and the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal ruling against Canada that there is discrimination against children. And uh, the only one we're still working on now is day scholars, the day scholars. So, but in terms of these other things I mentioned, there is movement, you know, and that provides some people with hope. Yeah, but am amongst this COVID-19 pandemic and everything else, and there's a lot of things we still have to get done in Canada, what gives Ken Richard hope? What makes you sleep at night, allows you to sleep at night? What gives you hope around your world and what you see happening across the provinces or across Canada? You know, this is, uh, these issues are the little engine that could. They've been jugging uphill from, all the, from, from as long as I can remember when I was an activist in the 70s and 80s. So that we have managed to gain some momentum. I think we're going to plow through COVID. But COVID yeah, can't be minimized. And I'm not one of those that want to do that. Uh, it's... Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's cast a dark cloud on everything and slowed things down dramatically. But that being said, uh, there's too much momentum going on with respect to Indigenous child welfare, Indigenous issues. I think uh, um, I'm trusting the science. I'm behaving. I'm, I'm not going anywhere. I'm hunkered down pretty good. I'm doing my job. And I'm hoping that we can just get on with it. And what that looks like later, I don't know, because... Probably you have the same experience. I've never talked to more people in my life than I have lately with respect to the capacity to engage with people electronically. So who knows? Uh, when I talk about those collaborative relationships, you don't have to fly everybody into Toronto for a day-long meeting. You know, with the sufficient technology and infrastructure, we can, have, we can meet every other day if we need to electronically just like this. So I'm very hopeful that, uh, that science will deal with COVID. I'm hopeful that their technology will assist us in our development, but I'm more hopeful that 
you know, it's taken a lot of energy, a lot of pain and a lot of work to get to the point we're at now. There's too much at play. We have lots of allies out there now. Those dark days are gone. Doesn't mean the sun is shining yet, because as I said, our kids can still be in distress. And that's the challenge to make sure we do it right this time in. Mr. Ken Richard, thanks so much for coming on our Akamema podcast. Uh, you know, it was an honor to be here. I appreciate it, Chief, a lot. Thank you. And I want to thank all the people for listening to the Akamemet podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Give us a rating and tell your friends about us on social media. And as always, we want to give a big shout out to the Red Dog Singers of the Treaty 4 Territory in Southern Saskatchewan for providing our theme music. Until next time, I'm Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. <laughs>